All right. Where are we at this morning? So let's talk a little bit about what we did last week. We finished up the poem and the worship song that is at the beginning of Ephesians. That starts in verse 3 and goes through um, verse 14. We finished up talking about that, and we read through the prayer, um, which is next in verses 15 through 23. We read through that and talked about a couple things that I'm going to highlight today. Since it's short and it's a good reminder, and we should just go ahead and read through it again. So we'll do that now. That is too small, so I'll read from here. And this is the beginning of the prayer in verse 15. For this reason, as I heard of y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which is toward all of the holy ones, I have not stopped giving thanks, making remembrance on y'all's behalf in my prayers, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Messiah, the Father of glory, would give y'all a spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to know him. The eyes of y'all's heart having been illuminated. It would help if I turn that on. There we go. So that y'all would know what is the hope of his calling. What is the richness of the glory of his inheritance among the holy ones? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward y'all who trust? in accordance with the working of the power of his might, which he worked in the Messiah, having raised him from the dead ones and having seated him at his right hand, seated him in the heavenly realm above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the coming one. And he placed all things under his feet and gave him headship over all things in the church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Last week when we ended up, I talked about what we would be looking at this week from the prayer. We've talked a lot about revelation and um, connected it with the word apocalypse, the understanding that heaven and earth are overlapping and that there's a spiritual realm And there's things that aren't immediately apparent to our physical eyes that are going on and that we have to learn to live in the heavenly reality. And Paul here is praying that the believers in Ephesus would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And keep in mind, he's praying for believers here. These are not people that are unaware of the heavenly reality, but still he prays for them to keep having this revelation. Because grasping the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus, is a process. And that's something that never stops for any of us. If it stopped for you, you should check and you know, make sure you still have a heartbeat. You, you, it should never stop for believers in Jesus. They should keep having this apocalypse and learning from the Holy Spirit about how to work this heavenly reality out in their lives. All these things that Paul prays for in verses 15 through 23... There are things that these people already have some knowledge of, but there's always more. There's always more for us. We never arrive at the end as long as we're alive. Um, That may sound daunting or discouraging. I know sometimes it's nice to just be able to close the book on something, but be encouraged because that's just by design. We never get to stop depending on God and the Spirit 
and the word to teach us and to make us more like Jesus. So it's actually a good thing. In verse 20, uh, this is a lot of what we're going to focus on in terms of revelation today. In verse 20, Paul begins to talk about the power of God that he worked in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him, exalted and seated him at his right hand. And uh, you'll see right here at the beginning, it says that he seated him in the heavenly realm. And that should be familiar language because we've talked about the apocalypse in terms of the two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. We did our two circle diagrams and went through that. So you can see that clearly portrayed here, but Paul goes on to say that he's seated there above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So you can see he moves from like a spatial conversation, heaven and earth, to a time-oriented conversation, this age and the age to come. So our circles have flipped, whereas they were like this, now they're like this. We're going to talk about the apocalypse and the revelation of Jesus in terms of this age and the age to come. He's talking about it. He's revealing another aspect of the lordship of Jesus. So in order to think about what does Paul mean about the lordship of Jesus in this age and the age to come, we should look at how does he even think about this age and the age to come. If some of this looks familiar to you, it's because um, I preached basically this sermon back in November, but it's been six months, so I thought maybe it would be good to go back over it. I didn't think maybe, I did think it would be good to go back over it. So this is how Paul saw this age and the age to come. Clearly in verse 21, there's two ages. This is really simple. This age, that's the current age that we live in. And then there's an age to come. In uh, this age, it's characterized by a lot of fallen world stuff that we're really familiar with, um, like evil and sin that um, came in in the garden, and Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and then slowly or quickly after that, death came. Um, they were exiled from the garden, and they no longer had access to the tree of life. They no longer had access to the presence of God, and they died. And uh, slavery came. People came into captivity to powers and principalities. People are living under deception when they're still living in sin. Um, violence filled the earth. Genesis said that uh, violence was filling the earth. People do terrible things to each other. And this is a pattern that starts with Cain killing his brother Abel, the first murder. And that pattern just continues to play itself out over and over. And of course, we have curse. Genesis 3, um, the curse comes on down through humanity because of the failure of humanity, the forfeiting of God's blessing. That's this age. We're all pretty familiar with what this age looks like. Um, in Paul's worldview, his view of the present time, there was something called the day of the Lord. And this was a moment, a hard moment that would transition from this age and the one to come. This is all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. You can find it in many places. Malachi 4 is an example. Uh, the day of the Lord is characterized by divine justice. So there is punishment and condemnation for the wicked. People get their recompense um, at the day of the Lord. 
and for the faithful and for the righteous, there's resurrection and there's life and the blessing of God. Those are uh, things that happen with the day of the Lord. So after this transition, all of the this age elements are reversed in the age to come. So instead of evil and sin, you have justice, God's justice, things being just and right, just weights and measures, um, God's love. Instead of death, both physical and spiritual death, you have life. And instead of people being deceived and enslaved, you have the freedom of God in the new creation, the freedom of God's people. Instead of violence, um, you have peace. And instead of curse, people get to live in the blessing of the Lord. So this is all, this was the framework that Paul had for thinking about his present moment, about um, things to come and things right now, before he ever met Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is all um, stuff that's established by your Old Testament. If you look for it there, it's really obvious. So previously, though, there's something new that happens. Previously, Paul saw the resurrection as something that happened, remember, as a hard and fast transition between the two ages. But when he met Jesus, things were different than he expected. What ended up happening is there was an overlap between this age and the age to come. And this is where the new begins for his thinking. Um, Resurrection the resurrection of Jesus, which was an age to come element, had occurred in the risen Jesus right here in the midst of this age. That happened right in the current age. Um, And Paul couldn't deny this uh, because he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was an experience, obviously, that he'll never forget, will never forget Paul's experience about how he met Jesus and his testimony of that. So rather than being this hard transition to the new age, where the new age elements totally swallow up all of the elements of the old age, um, this resurrection event is instead this tremendous birth of new creation energy right in the midst of this age, right in the midst of the enemy's camp. Jesus has this amazing victory, and he releases that power and makes it possible for people to participate in that. The age to come is, some say, birthed right here in this age. So not only did he believe that, but he also believed that Jesus' resurrection was a preview. It was a preview of the completion or the full transition between this age and the age to come, which will take place at Jesus' return. That's that fulfillment and completion that we talk about. Um, So some people describe it this way. Um, They say that the day of the Lord and that new creation was inaugurated at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and that it will be consummated when he returns. So inaugurated and consummated. You've heard me use these words a lot lately because they've been really helpful to me in understanding this paradigm of thinking about our present moment. Um, The now, not yet. So this is how... Um, Just like in our discussion about the bond between the two realms, the bond between heaven and earth, Paul can talk about heavenly future realities in right now terms. You are sitting here in this room, but you are also 
raised and exalted with Jesus in the heavenly realms, ruling and reigning with him. And this kind of paradigm and the heaven and earth paradigm is why Paul can talk about that like it's happening right now. And um, another interesting portion of scripture that points to this is 1 Corinthians 10. In that portion of scripture, Paul is talking to the believers at Corinth and he is uh, warning them. He's saying, don't be like Israel. Don't grumble. Don't test God. Don't chase after idols and do all of these things. And he says to them, um, now these things happen to them, to Israel, as an example to us, those on whom the ends of the ages have come. And some of your translations will say something different in that portion of scripture, but this is a great translation because it perfectly puts into words the truth of the statement. If you're living here, uh-oh, the pointer just died, I think. Um, if you're living between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, you are one on whom the ends of the ages have come. Does that make sense? Two ends of the little circles have come upon you. So post-resurrection, pre-return, the ends of the ages have come upon you. In the overlap of the ages, uh, the risen Jesus reigns as king, and his resurrection, remember, is just a foretaste of the divine power that will be manifested when God remakes all of creation. That was just as incredible as that was, we can't even begin to conceive of what it will be like for God to remake all of creation. That was a taste of that power. When we talked about this back in November, we compared it to another graphic, and we've used this a couple times now, and I find it really helpful. Um, how do you think about your present moment? Um, it's important to look at that. Do you see it as framed in the one graphic where there's the holy God and there's you who has a sin problem and that would be really bad because then you would be condemned, but thank God for Jesus. Now you get to go to the good place, but most people go to the bad place. Or do you think about it in terms of the entire heavenly reality that Jesus has risen and um, he's exalted and that you're ruling and reigning with him and that there's still powers at work in the world that are for evil, um, but you have overcome them, that you are an authority over them, that you are no longer in captivity and that um, by living in the kingdom, you bring others into that victory. And the way that you look at your present moment is really important. And the smaller graphic about individual salvation is, of course, very important. It's always going to be important to talk about people getting saved. But if you just condense the entire import of the biblical story down to just that, it's like looking at an elephant with a microscope. You're still looking at the elephant, but there's so much of the story that's just not present. And if you focus just down to that, it turns, it can easily turn into this like type of thinking that says, well, the whole world is just going to go to hell in a handbasket. And I just have to hang on for dear life and hope that I don't go with it. And I'm covered. So I'm just going to hang on to my get out of hell card until I die. And that's where it's really important. And we don't want to think like that. That's not the way that we should think. That's not the way that we should teach people to think. We've got to disciple people in the kingdom and help them to understand that there's so much more 
beyond that. Um, instead of putting all the importance of your salvation onto some far removed day when you die or when Jesus returns, thinking about it in light of the whole biblical truth gives you purpose for today, how to live your life today. Instead of it just being all about you and thank God that you're covered, it becomes all about living every day like the old is fading away and the new has come. And the truth of the full biblical picture is that we're living on grace. Some people call this the age of grace, the time between Jesus's resurrection and his return. And it's going to run out. Like it's just not going to go on forever. And someday there won't be any more time and everyone's going to have to give an account and it's not going to go well for some people. That's just the truth of the matter. And last week I talked about something. It was just a little blip in my notes, but it really stuck with me as I prepared for this week. And as I even just thought about it personally, um, the church as the focal point of Jesus's authority and lordship. We know that Jesus is Lord of all. It is a reality to us that he is ruling and reigning over heaven and earth right now. We know that. Um, the world does not know that. They reject Jesus they reject his authority and his lordship because they're deceived, because they are in captivity. And our declaration of Jesus's authority breaks through that deception. That's what the Bible means when it says that we're a city on a hill that gives light to the whole world. So when you consider that the time for being that city on a hill is limited, this is such a serious thing to consider. And I don't want to say it in a condemning or a legalistic way, like you got to do everything right or else feel really guilty about it. Um, but the degree to which we manifest the lordship of Jesus in our lives and as a church body, is, it's really important. That's it's got some gravity to it, you know? We should put some thought into that and um, make sure that uh, we submit to Jesus in everything because it's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> so to finish up talking about, well, we're not going to, we're never going to finish up talking about it as we go through Ephesians because everything loops back around to it. But the exaltation of the risen Jesus is a key theme. It's a really important theme in the entire letter to the Ephesians. And it is something that you guessed it is portrayed in your old Testament, right? It goes right back and connects to the Old Testament scriptures, like so many other things that we've talked about so far. So you can see um, in Ephesians chapter 1, um, the Messiah is raised from the dead ones. He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, and all things are placed under his feet. This looks a lot like Psalm 110, where God says, um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Ephesians said, all things have already been placed under his feet. And Psalms says, sit here until I place all things under your feet. Which is it? This is a picture of the now, not yet. Are all things under Jesus' headship right now? His rule and reign. Yes, they are. Is there a future fulfillment of that? Yes, there is. That's just what's pictured right here in scripture, is this whole dynamic we've talked about, about heaven and earth and the now, not yet. You can see the same kind of language here in Daniel 7. Um, the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven. Jesus pictured in the heavenly realm. 
coming up to the Ancient of Days and being given dominion. It says that he was given glory in a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and language might serve him and that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is totally an Old Testament idea that continues to be filled out and this continuity runs right into our New Testament letters. Um, Psalm 8, this is an interesting one. I talked about Psalm 8 back when I did a sermon about Jesus being the second Adam. I'll just read it to you. This is verses 4 through 6. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So Psalm 8 um, is written about human beings and the authority that they were given in Genesis, the authority that they forfeited through rebellion. And where they completely failed, um, Jesus did not. He, he succeeded. He did not forfeit God's blessing. He maintained perfect obedience to the Father, and he fulfilled that calling that humanity uh, forfeited and failed at. So now all who are in him are restored to that calling, to have all things under their feet, that calling to rule and reign and to live in God's blessing. So this psalm that was written about human beings in Genesis, um, you can trace that blessing right to Jesus and the restoration of the blessing for those who believe. So this is kind of all the end of chapter 1. Um, four Sundays, we're through chapter one, and we didn't by any means go verse by verse, but we covered a lot of concepts, and this book is so interconnected that as we continue to work our way through, there will be other places where we're jumping back into chapter one. Um, I thought it would be a good time to do a recap of what we have been through so far. So when we first broke into chapter one, we talked about the greeting. One whole Sunday was just verses one and two. Uh, we discussed, if you remember, that Paul addressed the letter to the Ephesians to the holy ones. And the holy ones is an Old Testament term, and it referred to two groups, um, the nation of Israel and spiritual beings that are gathered around God's throne, giving him praise and their allegiance. Um, by using these words... Um, the Holy Ones, to talk about the assembly of believers here on earth. Paul, right from the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians, is making an important point about their identity and our identity. He's referring to their exaltation in the heavenly realm by virtue of being in Jesus, the exalted one. Chapter 2, verse 6, uh, where he says that we were once dead, but he made us alive in Christ raised us and seated us with Jesus. And remember, this is our identity in the truest sense, and it is a very important facet of the apocalypse of Jesus. And that heavenly reality um, has implications for every area of our life. And that's what we spend our life with the Spirit and the Word working out um, in, in every, every area of our lives is that heavenly reality. We talked about the words in Ephesus and how those words are absent from most early manuscripts. 
and they were added later, most likely. So uh, it looks like maybe uh, the letter to the Ephesians was intended as a circular that went throughout the region of Ephesus rather than just to a specific house church. The, uh, there's no situational context in the letter to the Ephesians, and uh, the exhortations and warnings, the teaching in Ephesians is pretty general for a broad audience. So those are a couple of reasons why they think maybe it was a circular for the region. We also talked about you equaling y'all. Remember I said that in English we have the word you, and it can mean singular or it can mean plural. And in Greek, they have two words for that. One word is you singular, and one is you plural. In the letter to the Ephesians, every single you that you see is the Greek word for plural. So they um, translated all of those as y'alls, which gives this letter, it helps you get a, uh, a sense of the corporate nature of the letter rather than just seeing it as this is to me, um, it was written for you, and it has this corporate tone to it. It was written to a bunch of y'all. All right, the next Sunday was a big one. Um, We got into the poem, Paul's Worship Song, which is verses 3 through 14. Remember, we went through that list of blessings. Um, We were receiving so many blessings. He's blessed us. He's chosen us. He's adopted us. And God pictured as this giver and us pictured as receivers. We talked about the election language in in um, the worship song, and how that was Israel-directed, and the, uh, the adoption, the choosing, which led us into the uh, concept of biblical election, which is where God chooses one out of the many, so that through that one, he can restore his blessing back to the many. And we traced the blessing language all the way from Adam and Eve all the way down to Jesus. Jesus was the one that restored the blessing to the many. Now all who are in him are elect ones because he is the elect one. When you are in Messiah, you are the chosen because he is the chosen one. He fulfilled that calling. And we talked about us and y'all. Remember, Paul is addressing two groups in the letter to the Ephesians. And... uh, The us is defined as the first to hope in the Messiah. That's what he calls them. And those are the believing Jews. And this fits right along with the roadmap of Acts. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Remember when Jesus sends out the 12, he says, first go to the lost sheep of Israel. And they all in the book of Ephesians is the Gentiles who heard the word of truth and were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Gentiles are included in the blessings promised to Israel because they are also in Messiah. So believing Jews, believing Gentiles are united. They become one in Jesus and they come into all the blessings that are restored through Jesus. And that concept of unity led right into talking about all things being summed up in Messiah Jesus. Phrases like in Messiah, in him, through him are used over 20 times in in the letter to the Ephesians. The concept of unity um, and oneness in Jesus are central to the whole letter to the Ephesians. And uh, 
All of these things will be brought into order in such a way that we can't even think of when summing up all things in the Messiah is filled. Remember, uh, we talked about all things in heaven and all things on earth. So all uh, rebellion and all those things in the spiritual realm will be dealt with as well as here on earth. All things will be rectified and reconciled in the Messiah. And then we talked about um, redemption, redemption through blood and the forgiveness of sins. Remember the redemption of Israel from their captivity. Um, that Exodus maps onto the new Exodus of the new covenant family and Messiah. Our Exodus from captivity and death to freedom and life through the blood of Jesus. This was just last Sunday's stuff. Um, in Jesus, we also have restored access to abundant wisdom and understanding. We have our eyes opened to the truth of the apocalypse, who Jesus is, who we are in him, and uh, all of that revelation. We're able to partake in Jesus, the restored tree of life. He said that those who eat of me will not die, but have eternal life. So the tree of life in Eden represented God's own power, presence, wisdom, and blessing. And that has been restored to us through Jesus and it also has a complete fulfillment that will come in the future. So there is a right now component, and there's a not yet component. So that is the end of chapter one. Next week, we will start talking about chapter two and cool things like zombies, basically. <laughs> the, the dead ones who are, appear to be alive, but they are actually dead, and how we were raised from the dead ones. We'll talk about that starting next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all of the goodness that you have lavished upon us, Lord. Truly, your kingdom and your love, your mercy is so abundant toward us, Lord. I pray that as we continue to go through this letter, as we continue to look at Paul's words, that you would really increase our revelation, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, Lord that we would know hope, that we would know glory, that we would know a greater sense of identity, a greater sense of who you are and all that you've done, Lord. Show us how to work that out and to live that, Lord. Show us where we forfeit it, where we voluntarily go back into bondage and places in our lives, Lord. Help us to walk out of those things and not do that anymore, to live fully in the light of your resurrection, Lord. We thank you for all things, all that you're doing and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.